0: The Classic Comics Forum Podcast presents issue number 25, Star Wars by Marvel Comics, part five. Welcome back to the Classic Comics Forum Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Scott Harris King, and in this episode, The Confessor and I will continue our sixth part, that's right, it's now 6 part, deep dive into Marvel Star Wars. In the previous four episodes, we covered issues 1 through 80, as well as annuals 1 and 2, and supplemental materials such as pizzazz and the stories that were written exclusively for the UK audience in Star Wars Weekly. In this episode, we'll be picking up with annual number three. We'll cover the Return of the Jedi adaptation, and then we'll follow that up with a continuing look at Joe Duffy's run and see where she's left after the movie's end and how Lucasfilm's increasing demands end up altering and in some cases ruining her plans. So we'll be looking at issues eighty-one through ninety-four. So strap in. I hope you are still enjoying all this Star Wars talk because there's plenty more to come. So let's talk about annual
1: number three. I mean, there's not that much to say about. It. I don't really like it. I think. I think. I think the. Problem with the Star Wars annuals is that they were, for the most part, were a real missed opportunity. The first one is great, but the second one is particularly bad. And the third one's a bit like that as well. It's Klaus Janson, isn't it, who does the art on that. Uh, and so it's very sort of, I'm not a big fan of his art anyway. So it sort of looks kind of weird. I don't think it's one of Joe its best issues. Uh, no,
0: I didn't really care for it either. Uh, just real quick for yeah, listeners yeah. who haven't read it. There's this group of, of rebels that we get to know that are sort of like, you know, if you ever wondered what the rest of the rebels are doing while the main characters are doing their thing, we get some of those people get spotlighted here because they kind of they want to become Jedi. They want to be trained by Luke and so they kind of get swept up in one of his adventures and you kind of see why those are background characters and not main characters, because they basically get kind of chewed up. But one of them in particular really wants to become a Jedi, and Luke won't train him. And at the end, he sort of defects basically to the Empire at the end of the issue because he feels sort of personally let down by the leadership of the rebellion.
1: Yeah, that's 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 basically it. I mean, we, which in and of itself doesn't sound like a bad kind of you know story or a done in one kind of sort of annual issue, but it's just I don't know. It's really it's forgettable. Uh, like you were saying, you know, you don't remember it that well. There's loads of plot holes in it. Vader is resolutely out of character throughout most of it. And then I'm personally not that big a fan of the artwork um, of Klaus Janssen. It's
0: very forgettable. The only thing that makes it, I think, of any interest is that Duffy does follow up on it. And there's a there's a double size. We're going to talk about this because it's published in issue 92. There's basically a double size follow up story where we get these characters brought back. And, and we'll talk about it when we get to 92, because I found that issue to be very jarring um, in a couple couple ways.
1: But, yeah, I mean, Duffy was obviously a fan of this, uh, you know, of this whole thing and her characters enough to bring them back in a later issue. You know, uh, Flint is the guy, isn't he? He's the he's the guy who wants to sort of um, become a Jedi that Luke sort of turns his back on and Vader essentially, you know, uh, turns up to take on his training instead. But I, I just think if you compare it to the rest of the staff, the, you know, at this, at this point in the run, you know, Duffy's really you know, to sort of use an American kind of baseball sort of uh, phrase, really knocking it out of the park, you know. And then she sort of throws this out, and I, I just... I, I don't think it holds up to what she was doing in the main series, really. I don't think it's anywhere near as good.
0: No, I agree. So at the same time, uh, as you mentioned that this came out, we get the Return of the Jedi adaptation.
1: Yes, I think maybe the the adaptation might have started, actually, before Annual 3 hit the shelves, but certainly it, it was around the same time. Um as I say, there was one month, I think, where there were three Star Wars issues. Because The the whole thing with the Return of the Jedi adaptation is that it was not, unlike the previous two films, it was not adapted as part of the series. It was a sort of separate standalone four-issue miniseries. And as I understand it, the whole thinking behind that was, well, why don't we get two Star Wars comics on the on the stand every month instead of one? It was as simple as that. It was just an economic thing with the you know, obviously the hype uh, around Return of the Jedi when it came out.
0: Yeah, it makes sense from an economic standpoint. I do Mm. feel like it creatively, I kind of feel like it hurt the book.
1: What I would say is that what it did allow was um, Duffy to sort of write uh, a much, much more sort of smooth ending. We we, we talked about like the um the, the Ellie the issue number eighty Ellie uh, and their whole end of the, the search for Tate Vanisark and how that dovetailed into the events of Return of the Jedi so smoothly. Uh, and I think part of that was because essentially she was left alone to do that while Archie Goodwin and Al Williamson did the Return of the Jedi adaptation. So in some ways, I think it actually worked better than trying to sort of fit it into the actual you know normal regular comic run you know
0: of course we, we talked about goodwin and and williamson working together before they did the previous adaptation for empire strikes back
1: right. and, and jedi is very very i mean w- with me you know if it's al williamson it's instantly great i don't you know, i'm i'm completely blinded by al, al williamson i find it very hard to be sort of uh, in any way subjective i don't think it's as good as The Empire Strikes Back. I think the Empire Strikes Back adaptation is one of the greatest uh, movie adaptations ever. You know, uh, certainly within comics, I think you'd have to go a long way to find something better than that. Return of the Jedi is serviceable. There's a real hodgepodge of. um, It sort of it starts off quite strong, but then in later issues, there's a real hodgepodge of different artists that come in. And Al Williamson was at was at this point also drawing the star wars newspaper strip and he you know he might have thought that he'd be able to manage doing both but obviously it must have become apparent pretty quickly that he couldn't because certainly issues three and four of the four issue miniseries have a whole host of other artists that are you know all piling in to help him out and i understand that it was done it was completed very late on in the day and certainly the the array of artists would sort of would you know go along with that
0: one thing that's interesting about that is you would i would kind of not expect that to have been the case considering that this was only a four issue adaptation whereas the previous two movies had been six issue adaptations did you see from your perspective like a a real difference in how the pacing and the the writing with only four issues to work with as opposed to being able to flesh things out with more with a six issue adaptation?
1: Uh yeah, even at the time I remember feeling that it was a little bit rushed. And of course there are there are there are, there are key moments in the film that are really squandered. Um the death of Jab at the heart is one that I've always thought is I think it's handled in about two panels and it's very Sort of anticlimactic, really. And, of course, Jabba's such a big character. And even though we hadn't seen him, uh, although actually in the Marvel run we had, only he, you know, as we discussed earlier, he looked completely different. It's just sort of squandered. And most weirdly, of course, uh, Yoda's death is, is not included at all. I mean, it just—it's just—it's like Yoda didn't die, and I don't know whether that is because they were running out of space and there was other stuff they needed to do. You would think that that's a pretty pivotal thing. My, my own feeling is—is is it possibly just like the Wampa in in the Empire Strikes Back, and just like the giant space slug in the Empire Strikes Back—that Lucasfilm probably said they didn't want Marvel to put that in the adaptation for sort of fear of spoiling people
0: i mean for me like uh like you say it's al williamson and archie goodwin it's competent i did also feel like it lost something by being only four issues return of the jedi was the first of the three movies that i got to see in the theater when empire came out i was was seven when empire came out and my parents just at that point didn't bring me to see it but by the time return of the jedi had come out i think we had seen both star wars and Empire on television at that point. So, Return of the Jedi, I remember it's the first movie I saw in the theater twice. I was 10 when it came out. So, I have a lot of fond memories of the movie. Um, as I think mm. I've mentioned in the previous part of our conversation, I, unlike a lot of revisionist historians, uh, you know, as a kid, I thought the Ewoks were great. I love the Ewoks.
1: The Ewoks are great. Yeah, you know, this is one of my real big bugbears about uh, the Star Wars fandom. Uh, you know, Uh, the Ewoks to me, I mean, yeah, they work great when you're a kid, but they're fundamentally, you know, uh, an intrinsic Star Wars thing. You know, they are, you know, Uh, Star Wars is like modern mythology or whatever. And it's obviously based on a lot of ancient mythology. And I think it's in one of, it might even be like the making of the Return of the Jedi documentary that came out in 83, but Lucas actually describes the Ewoks as being, you know, essentially the magic little bunny on the side of the road that gives you the the magic potion that then you can go on and defeat the the, the evil witch with. You know, that's, you know, this whole thing, all the way through all three films, there's this recurrent theme of uh, the human spirit or the, you know, the the basic human spirit uh, triumphing over sort of, you know, technological adversity. Um, You see it in the first film, particularly with um, Luke in the Death Star Trench.
0: Yeah.
1: He t- you know he turns off his targeting computer r 2 is destroyed and so he's stripped of that help from his droid and that's that that's the whole thing and really this the idea of a of a primitive race like the ewoks helping to overthrow this technologically superior adversary with you know the empire that is the the main underlying theme of Star wars writ large you know so mm-hmm. I, obviously everyone has their own point of view but you know, it's when people say that they don't like the Ewoks or they think they're rubbish. I just sort of think, I'm not sure you've really understood Star Wars. <laughs> you know? Right. The idea of a, of a group of primitives uh, overthrowing the Empire had, of course, been there since, you know, some of the really early drafts of, of the original film. And originally it was meant to be um, Wookiees. It was meant to be the, the Wookiee planet and the Wookiees were going to overthrow the, um, the Empire.
0: Uh, but as you said, by the time we got to this point in the story, the Wookiees had clearly been shown to be technologically advanced. I mean, Chewbacca um, even repairs C-3PO, so uh, they couldn't really go with that original
1: plan. Yeah, I, I don't think it's really a coincidence that the Ewoks kind of even look like Wookiees. They, they're kind of dwarf Wookiees, aren't they, really? So let's let's jump ahead to issue 81.
0: There's a couple things I want to say overall about the Joe Duffy run. Um, And what I was trying to say was in terms of in terms of it being a creative issue for the series to have Return of the Jedi as a separate series instead of being adapted within the series is, as you mentioned, it does give Joe Duffy a chance to set things up in issues 79 and 80 in particular. But I wonder if it would have also been useful to get even more time to continue things, because I find that there's a lot of really good stuff following Return of the Jedi and a lot of really interesting ideas. But in general, I find that Joe Duffy's run is constantly being undermined and eventually ruined. Uh, this stream of fill in issues. It seems like she rarely gets more than two issues, sometimes three in a row before she's interrupted by another fill in. They're just constantly coming in. Like after, you know, we get issues 81 and 82, but then there's fill ins in 83 and 84. She comes back for one issue, and then there's a fill-in in in 86, and a fill-in in in issue 89, and it's just... and she's trying to do these ongoing subplots and main plots, and yet... and then it'll just be totally derailed by these constant... I wonder if she had had this sort of, like, four-month break where where Goodwin was writing Return of the Jedi issues within Star Wars... If that would have could have been avoided, or if there was some other reason why these villains—if they were burning off inventory, or if these villains were being caused because, as I think we're going to discuss in detail, the further she gets into her run post Return of the Jedi, the more interference she's getting from Lucasfilm with the plot. So I wonder if some of these villains are because uh, the issues she, the story she wants to tell. She's suddenly got to rewrite and now they've got to plug a hole because what she was going to do isn't ready to, to publish yet.
1: That could well be the case. I've never heard that, but that might be. I mean, there's certainly I agree with you. There's a lot of filling issues, uh, especially sort of in the sort of six months or so. Immediately after Return of the Jedi, the adaptation of Return of the Jedi. Why that is, I don't. I don't really know. Yeah, you might. You might well be right. I mean, there's some terrible filling issues. When we come
0: back from Return of the Jedi with issue 81, I, I, there's some things in 81 that jumped out to me.
1: Best issue of the whole run. Uh, there That's was, what I read. <laughs>
0: there, there's some things in 81 that I really like. Like there's some mm-hmm. stuff that I that I really like that unfortunately didn't get developed the way I was hoping. Because when I read issue 81, the first thing that jumped out to me, this wasn't something that I really liked, but there's this really awkward exposition dump at the beginning where they basically recap in dialogue form everything that happened in Return of the Jedi, since it didn't appear in the series. They can't assume that people, I guess, have seen the movie or read the other series going on. So we just get this, like, one-and-a-half-page huge exposition dump which is fine but I was like this. it felt very gym Shooter like where the thing where you constantly remind everybody what who everyone is and what everyone's powers are and what the storyline is moving past that there were some things in 81 that I, I really liked a lot because because it picked up right after the end of the movie but in some in some unexpected ways uh, particularly hmm. we see right off the bat how little effect <laughs> defeating the Emperor at the end of Return of the Jedi has. There's there's very little immediate effect because there's just so much entropy. Like, the the the, the Empire's so big that maybe cutting off the head kills the snake, but the snake's body is so large that it takes a long time for the tail to realize it's dead. Uh, and I, I really liked how they're kind of setting this up uh, here where, I don't know, it, it felt like um we we get some scenes where they're basically like okay now that that's happened we have to have the really hard work of actually picking up the pieces building something to replace the empire and that's not just going to happen like we've got this is just the beginning we've got so much work now that this has happened and that i feels like it's a step that a lot of stories never get to you it's just like oh they win it's happily ever after and in here they win and it's not heavily, heavily ever after, particularly because right. we get Han Solo. And I love this character bit um, where he basically just runs off. Like uh, you expect him and Leia after the events of of uh, Return of the Jedi to sort of, you know, get married and, and, you know, live in their princess castle. But he's kind of like, he just books it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I uh, there's a couple of things. I mean, I could talk a lot about this issue, but. The uh, first thing you were sort of saying about the this sort of big exposition sort of dump, I'm not sure I've ever really thought that. I mean, it opens in the Ewok Village, and it's clear that it's the night after the you know the the, the big celebration party at the end of um, at the end of Return of the Jedi. But the the overriding thing of it is that is that you know han has no money and he he's just come out of carbon freeze and been swept up in the events of return of the jedi and now for the first time he's sort of catching his breath and really that's what the whole story is about isn't it the whole the whole because it's a done in one issue and the whole thing really is about how han solo you know deals with this pretty traumatic thing that's happened to him you know he's lost six months of his life Uh, coupled with that yes absolutely I think it begins in the next issue, doesn't it? In, in 82, where they talk about this alliance of free planets. And I agree. I think that's, I think that's brilliant. Um, that the, the Duffy would, you know, essentially grab the bull by the horns and start to deal with these probably fairly sort of difficult kind of, you know, questions. Because this is her thing, you know, the, the, the arc has finished, hasn't it? Let's be honest, the three-film arc has finished and now she's got to find somewhere else to go with that. Uh, and I think that's very ambitious of her to sort of basically dive straight into this you know the alliance basically trying to form this alliance of of a free planet
0: i was really excited in this issue that that Joe Duffy brought back boba fett and oh, yeah. because of course i love boba fett and as a mm-hmm. kid i spent so much time fan wanking as a child how boba fett could have survived the sarlacc so when i saw that the first thing she does is to bring back boba fett i was so excited but then she just offs him again at the end uh, sort of doubles down on the joke of him falling in the pit and that was, that was a bit of a disappointment for me
1: yeah i agree um i think it was a bit of a disappointment for joe duffy as well uh from what i've read Again, really gutsy move, you know, bringing him bringing him back straight away um, makes a whole lot of sense to me that, you know, he he wasn't killed. He fell into the Sarlacc, which, you know, as we're told in the film, takes thousands of years to digest his victims. And of course, he's got all of his armor, all of his, you know, his rocket pack albeit you know damaged by his by uh, Luke's lightsaber. But he's got all of his weapons and, you know, whatever. It made a whole lot of sense to me that he would come back, and of course, Dark Horse pulled the same trick in um, in, in their Dark Empire. You know, many years later, um, in a completely different post Return of the Jedi comic continuity, they did the same thing, and it makes sense that he would be able to escape from the sun. But of course, Lucasfilm had said, "Well, look, you know, they'd given very strict instructions that Boba Fett was completely off limits," and Duffy really just. Via uh, the book's editor Louise Jones, sort of petitioned Lucasfilm and said, Look, can we just have him for one issue and we'll play with him and then we'll put him right back where we found him? And that was the only way that she could get it past Lucasfilm, Uh, you know, which, and it is, it is a shame, you know, and and of course, the Forbes.
0: Yeah, we're going to see a lot of things dictated by Lucasfilms. And one thing that struck me about issue 81 before we move on. It's, I'm just starting to think we might do a whole podcast in issue 81 because the other thing about issue 81 that struck me in terms of Joe Duffy and in terms of Lucasfilm is just like it must have been very difficult back in issue 44 to suddenly not have Han Solo available, like one of your three main characters is no, you can't do anything with him. It's kind of the opposite here where Joe Duffy is, they've been writing and she's been planning all these storylines and introducing all these new characters and doing all the stuff. And all of a sudden you have a new, like a main character of the series is just dropped in and now you've got to accommodate all these stories about Han Solo. It seems like to me, it feels now she had to have assumed that this was going to happen. I guess people assumed Han Solo would be coming back and survive the movie, but uh, it just seems like a really difficult and interesting creative challenge to basically be told, okay, here's a, a character that you now have to fit in your stories and he has to be one of the main characters in the series going forward.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess the other way of looking at it is that she was probably, you know, over the moon that he was, that he was back and she was able to play with Han Solo again. And again, I think, you know, she does it very, very well in this first issue. It's a very deep issue. You know, it's, um, you know, you're essentially seeing Han dealing with the sort of post-traumatic stress of 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 what happened to him in the empire strikes back and his standing you know now that there's no empire is he going to carry on with the rebellion is he going to go back to smuggling
0: she really got the jump by several decades on Mm. on the force awakens because what the way they portray han and and how specifically he sort of changed after the end of return of the jedi is very similar to what we see here in issue 81
1: yeah absolutely i think she's got it she's got it bang on and it's you know and there's so much in this issue you know you get you know there's there's really poignant moments there's lot there's action there's comedy
0: yeah it's it's really a, an excellent start to the post return of the jedi series um but since we we don't want to do an entire podcast just on issue 81 even though I threatened that we would uh let's let's move ahead okay so uh issue 82 we a, a few things happen in issue 82 that are important the big one for me is that we have this situation where they acknowledge that it's not going to be as simple as just, you know, we win and we all live happily ever after. They have to create that happily ever after by creating a new, stable government so that you know, nature pours a vacuum. they don't they want to make sure that the you know evil forces don't just come in to take the place of the empire. They want to build something new. And so they send out our heroes to visit the different planets, to convince them to send representatives into this new Congress. That's going to create this new Alliance. So we got Luke going to, uh, back to Escalon and he, uh, his mission is a, is a complete failure, um, because they, they don't want to have anything to do with any outside planets now, but he does run into Danny and Rick and Cheeto and, uh, cause they're trying to loot the planet. And at the end we get a surprising development where Kiro, uh, who we, who we met on the previous visit to Escalon uh, decides to leave the planet and join, uh, Luke on his travel. And he gets this, uh, basically the spacesuit that's sort of got a water in it so he can breathe. And it looks just like samurai armor because of course it does
1: he's part of the, the Iskalonians have this thing as like part of the school, but Kiro clearly right from his appearance doesn't.
0: Yeah. It's not explained in the story why they have this, these, the fish people have a school mentality, but Kiro is a, a clear individual outside of that. He thinks very differently from everyone else. He's not subject to what the school is thinking. Um So, they tend to, whatever the school is thinking, they just go along. But he, he consistently bucks what they, the, the school mentality and does his own thing. There's no in-story explanation for that. My fan-wanking is that we're going to find out in, in the next Kiro storyline that he's actually Force-sensitive. And so my, my assumption is that he thinks differently from everyone else because he's connected to the Force.
1: Yeah, which is which is a good theory. I I'd, I'd not thought of that myself, but uh, that would make sense. I don't think that's even offered out as a reason within the within the comics. But yeah, that's as good a, an explanation as any as any. Because, as you rightly say, Kiro is 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 very different. Um, I think the thing with this issue is that it's important because it's the first one where they really start with this idea of you know organizing this. Alliance of Free Planets—that's now going to, you know, essentially take the place of 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 the Empire. One thing I was going to was going to say was that there are some people who sort of have a problem with the way that the Marvel comic dealt with with the, with the sort of the, the fall of the Empire, and they sort of felt that you know it was all over too too sort of quickly. But actually, within the Marvel continuity, uh, I think it's Mom Mothma who, uh, I can't remember exactly which issue, but later on in the run, she actually says and makes it plain that, that after the destruction of the second Death Star at the Battle of Endor, the surviving Imperial League was essentially capitulated.
0: And you had made the point that this is, it's not that far fetched. There's some Star Wars fans that, that feel like, um, the idea of the empire just giving up like that simply because the emperor is dead is, is far-fetched. But there are some historical parallels to that. Uh, you know, World War Two being a big one where we see, you know, the death of Hitler immediately followed by his uh, successor in, in Germany opening nego- immediate negotiations with the Allies to surrender.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, Hitler's death, really, at the end of World War II is a perfect example of a, of a sort of a, a similar real-world situation or a scenario. So I don't really think that it's that far-fetched. I mean, uh, for one thing, there were a lot more Imperial ships and Imperial troops at the Battle of Endor than we ever saw in, in the film, you know, in Return of the Jedi. Uh, Emperor Palpatine himself says that there's a legion of his finest troops on Endor. Um, Now, a legion of troops is normally ten thousand soldiers, and there's no way that we saw Ewoks doing that with ten thousand stormtroopers. But they were they were clearly there because we're told that. Likewise, with the uh, Imperial fleet, I I think it's the uh, Return of the Jedi novelization that that says that the the ships that are there are the cream, the absolute cream of the Imperial Navy. And again they're all destroyed as well so basically the idea is that the the uh, imperial war machine is essentially ruthless after the loss of, of of the emperor and darth vader and also this you know this gigantic battle station the second death star
0: as you say there's more there's more resources being lost by the empire than we necessarily are aware of or have a context for I, to me, the amount of resources it would take to build a death star to begin with, but then a second death star, I feel like they're kind of putting all their eggs in one basket. The metaphor that I that I used earlier was that uh, it was kind of like they're building they're trying to build the a bomb. they're put you know, but in this case, the the rebellion stops them before they're able to finish building it. All their resources are tied up here and once they're destroyed, then the people that are sort of left, they don't really have either the will or the ability to continue fighting.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And um, let's not forget that the second Death Star is is much, much bigger than the first Death Star. So it had much, much larger crew and much, much more capacity for storing ships and things like that, all of which were lost when it was destroyed. So, yeah, I mean, I understand why some people don't like it. And some of the, you know, like the sort of Dark Horse continuity and some of the novels really ran with this idea that, that there was lots of the Empire left. And in fact, the the sequel trilogy, to an extent, has, has run with that, that actually there was a lot of this, you know, that, that, that then coalesced into the First Order, I think they're called, aren't they? But the idea, the alternate idea, that basically it was all over after, as far as the Empire was concerned, anyway. I think that worked. I agree.
0: So... So Joe Duffy set up some some really interesting um, political stuff here. She's put a, a interesting status quo into place where we've got our, our people are trying to create this new government. And we're really not going to see that pay off because this story after issue 82, what was supposed to be in issue 83, doesn't actually get published until 87. And what we get instead are four standalone issues, a couple of which are pretty good, most of which have no real effect on the ongoing storyline. Uh, we start with issue 83, which is a Lando uh, spotlight issue. It's it's a clear fill-in. It doesn't feel like it's part of the Star Wars universe, really. It's um, uh, you know, and in all of these, they kind of frame them as these characters on these you know diplomatic missions. But some of them, to me, read like like inventory stories that were sort of just tweaks to fill that. And uh, to me, there's really nothing, pre- 83 is okay, but there's nothing really interesting about it.
1: It's completely, in, you know, uh, inconsequential in the largest sort of scheme of things. I think it's quite an enjoyable issue. Uh, I think I said earlier, I'm not sure that this was a, an inventory story as such. It's clearly a fill-in issue, but it's, it was drawn by Bob McLeod. And he was, on the strength of this one issue, he was offered the job of regular penciler. Uh, and that's why you get a few a few of the subsequent issues are also penciled by him, but ultimately he didn't uh, he he didn't go he didn't stick with it. Apparently he was not keen on uh, Tom Palmer's inking. Actually,
0: so then we've got issue 84, which to me is similar to 83. In it's a one-off. It's a it's a fun enough story, doesn't really advance anything. Uh, in this case, it's Han Solo who is visiting a planet and has a, an adventure that involves you know the government. The local government and whatever um to me it just you know it's fine there was a bit of a jarring uh thing at the end where um there's like a sexy lady that ends up leaving with him on the millennium falcon and she's kissing him and he's flirting with her did really did not seem to jibe with han solo's you know post return of the jedi personality uh it felt like a regression of the character it kind of stuck out to me like a sore It it just that sequence didn't it just didn't make sense based on what we know of him and leia from the movie
1: uh i agree i you know but I, I i think overall it's a pretty it's an above average issue i think it's quite an enjoyable sort of done in one i i hate the sort of main villain which is this sort of feline sort of cat like alien that has this name which is like Sus- and and, and I, if i remember the um the name—it's I mean, a rubbish name—but it also has like the the exclamation mark as part of it. It's a constituent part of the name. It just looks like a uh, sort of a bipedal house cat. Uh, it, there's nothing alien about it at all, and there's nothing threatening about it. And clearly, it's meant to be a threatening character.
0: And the other thing about this issue, I just want to mention real quick, mm-hmm. is that <clears throat> this was um, drawn by David Mazucelli. Uh, I was disappointed because Tom Palmer's inking has always made it look like Tom Palmer. That we didn't get a full Masaccio considering the amazing artwork that he would do just a couple of years later in Batman Year One and in Daredevil Born Again. I think it would be, would have been really cool to see that here, kind of like those two issues we saw with Gene Day doing the art. Um, right. I think right, it would have been yeah. it would have been really interesting to see that. So it's disappointing that he we didn't get like full pencils and and full inks by himself. Right. You
1: know? Yeah, I know. I never really thought of that, but I think. Actually, on reflection, you're probably right. I mean, I like the art in this issue, but then I like Tom Palmer. But I agree with you that you don't really get to see much of uh, Mazzuccelli's sort of signature style. He he only did breakdowns for this issue. So it's not just the inking that Tom Palmer did. It's also the sort of finished art. But nonetheless, I agree that his his hand, if you like, is basically invisible in this um, in that issue. And I guess, yeah, that is a shame, I guess.
0: So then we get issue eighty-five, which is a, a really cool, much better uh, Lando spotlight mm-hmm. issue. Uh, I mean, there's a Han and Chewie are in it too. But basically, what happens here is a payoff for this long-running Captain Drebble joke, where Lando has been every time he takes on like a fake identity, he claims that he's Captain Drebble, and he's trying to get the real Captain Drebble, who we've seen previously, in trouble totally blows up in his face here because since he's been using that name on all these heroic missions for the rebellion the rebellion thinks that captain drebbel is actually a hero of the rebellion and they send them to deliver uh like an award for heroism to captain (laughs) drebbel
1: that's right which is a great i love that i think that's um you know i I love it for two reasons i love it because from Lando's point of view, that's brilliant. Yeah, he's been using this Captain Drebble persona, you know, in order to sort of basically get his arch enemy into trouble, and it's totally blown up in his face. And now his arch enemy is being celebrated as this hero of the rebellion. So I love that the way that it's sort of, you know, it hasn't worked out at all like he he wanted it to. But I also like it because of the character arc of Drebble himself. You know, that he starts off as this you know, quite nasty, but you know, but funny as well, kind of slightly comedic sort of, um, villain. Um, yeah,
0: he, he starts off as a bad guy, but then he, he, once he gets this decoration from the Alliance, Mm. um, he, to me, he kind of, he craves this respect and once he gets it, he doesn't want to lose it. And so he uh, starts to act like the hero that everyone thinks that he is, and uh, we see his behavior change right away because he he lets Lando go. It's an interesting sort of subtext about the sort of nature versus nurture dispute. Um, but yeah, it's it's a really great uh, twist that you don't really see coming. First, you get the, the twist where he gets awarded the medal, which is hilarious. But then the twist where he actually sort of... Uh, starts to live up to it once once he receives it he's like oh uh, wait I can be a hero oh okay great I'll I'll try that then
1: well this is it and it's really it's a great character arc and it's a really nice finish to that character arc but going back to the nature versus nurture thing that you were talking about it really is like I mean we we don't know what what Dribble's life has been like really prior to when we met him in the in the in the thing but you know he's probably never had the opportunity to do the right thing before and and it's really interesting that once he's been decorated as this rebel hero even though he knows really that he isn't he wants to live up to that he wants to be the rebel hero and i think that's yeah that's a that's a brilliant bit of writing on uh on duffy's uh, on joe duffy's point of the part on her part
0: yeah when we were talking at the beginning about who your favorite original characters were um you mentioned Rebel
1: yeah and i was sort of saying that um i think i said that drebble is in my top three and that's part of why you know he's a very he's a funny character he's incredibly memorable you know he's he's a big character both you know figuratively and literally but he's also got this wonderful character arc
0: we also see some interesting character work in a one-off in the next issue that's different but similar in a way where we have Princess Leia on her solo mission and she runs into the stormtrooper who was actually from Alderaan and of course she can't believe that he is a stormtrooper and um they have a lot of arguments cuz they're kind of stuck together in this sort of like enemy mind situation where they have to mm. sort of stick mm. together to survive by the end of the issue he comes around and he basically sacrifices himself so that she can survive uh, I thought it was a really good uh, story. There's a, there's a lot of interesting character stuff and morality play. And um, of uh, particular interest to Star Wars fans is that it's it was a film issue by a guy named Randy Stradley. I think it was his first comic book work. Um, just a couple years later, he co-founded Dark Horse Comics. And... Later became the senior editor of their Star Wars line and served in that position for over a decade before Marvel got the rights back. So, it's kind of a, it's a good story, but it's also kind of a key issue in terms of Star Wars comic lore for that reason.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, it's a it's a great issue, really good done in one issue. Really for a fill in, it's it's excellent actually. But um, the thing, the heart of it really is the sort of. Is the philosophical debate between Leia and uh, and the TIE fighter pilot, and we never learn his name either. And I have always wondered if that is significant, you know, because the the philosophical debate that I'm talking about is that, you know, Leia obviously obviously they're both from Alderaan, they both. Grew up on Alderaan, and and Alderaan was destroyed by the by the Empire. And Leia can't believe that this guy is now serving the Empire. He's an Imperial pilot. She considers him to be a traitor to to his homeworld or the memory of his homeworld. While he, on the other hand, argues that actually, you know, Alderaan never really did anything for him, and it's that kind of it's
0: a difference in perspective from someone who has uh, is rich and privileged and has power, as opposed to someone who's just like a common guy and doesn't have any of those things and feels like he can get some of those things uh, by joining the Empire.
1: And also it sort of hints uh, you know, although we see Star Wars from the, you know, in a way the viewpoint of of, of the Rebels and therefore Leia, but, you, you know, it's quite nuanced really because you can imagine that on Alderaan, you know, there would have been people that would be, critical of their opposition of the empire and, you know, almost, in a sort of like, Oh, you know, we shouldn't be doing this. We shouldn't be rocking the boat, you know? Uh, yeah, I think there is some, some heavy philosophical content, uh, in there. And it is, yeah, it's that debate between the two sort of things, you know, um, I think it's a good issue. And of course, the other thing about this issue is the artwork. Again, it's Bob McLeod, but the art is fantastic with Tom Palmer on inks, I think, but, uh, this is one of my favorite sort of standalone issues. It looks, great it's a great looking comic um and it's very thought-provoking you know it's uh it's kind of star wars comics at their best
0: so issue 87 we finally get back to the main storyline and it's actually a little bit disappointing but there's a couple important things here basically the whole crew which at the, this point is luke and he's got pliff with him i don't think we mentioned that earlier but he's got pliff traveling with him uh along with some of the other i I right believe. And Kiro, and he's got Rick and Danny and Cheeto, and they end up on this planet where there's this device that can destroy the entire universe. And, of course, the only person who can possibly stop it is Kiro, because it's underwater. And so he he goes underwater, and he almost dies saving it at the end of the issue. He's managed to stop it from destroying the universe, but he's sort of unconscious in this weird coma and they don't know whether he's going to survive or not. It's important here because it's sort of the beginning of we're going to discover how he was able to do this. It's because he was force sensitive. This is setting that up. It sets up a lot of things, but none of them very well because it makes him really seem like a Mary Sue character Where, in order to show just how awesome he is, she's created this absolutely ridiculous device thing that can destroy the entire universe, and she's made it function in such a way that only Kiro can stop it because he can breathe underwater. It it was kind of goofy.
1: Yeah, I I don't like the whole super weapon thing. Uh, it's much too powerful. I mean, you know, it's okay in Star Wars to destroy an entire planet. That's fine. We've seen that. That that works. But this is, if I remember rightly, it's something that it will it will set off like a a thing where it will cause planets to smash into each other and it will set off a chain reaction and it'll be like a huge intergalactic game of pinball and basically will destroy the entire universe. Not not just the Star Wars galaxy, you know, not just that galaxy far, far away, but the entire universe. That's just way over the top for me. And as you say, the whole thing is to deactivate it is so convoluted that it's underwater and everything, and only Kiro can do it. And it's basically just to set this thing up where Kiro does this, and then it's revealed later some issues in the future that it's because he could use the Force something I will say is at the end, I think it's interesting because
0: there's a moment right at the end. That's, that's uh, important, even though it's really clumsily done and easily missed
1: in the last panel, you see basically that, that Danny's affections shift from Luke and, and, and are now placed on Kiro, although you could be forgiven for missing that because it's very subtle. (laughs) Yeah,
0: it's very subtle. I totally missed it. And, uh, we're going to talk about this when we get to issue 95, because I have a feeling that uh, there's some editorial shenanigans going on here. But let's jump ahead to issue 88, because this is an important issue. The story, the story's okay. It's a, This is a Princess Leia spotlight. Now she's on a planet, and she's trying to convince them to come back to the thing, like every one of these issues. Uh, but there's a group of slavers on the planet, uh, and it turns out they're being run by this uh, vader knockoff a female vader called lumaya and she's teased on the cover specifically as being this big new replacement for darth vader and i think that weight of that burden is too much for the character because she never lives up to that i think they hyped her up too much right from her origin here like
1: i agree i mean she's definitely meant to be the replacement for, you know, uh, for, for Darth Vader in the series, she even sort of looks a bit like him. She has the same kind of she's all in black and she has like this sort of breath mask kind of grill in her sort of helmet sort of thing. Yeah. This issue
0: for what it is, you know, you can tell that they're setting stuff up for the future with Lamaya, particularly because they introduced her so big on the cover. And as a standalone story, it's it's OK. I don't know. I, I didn't find anything that great about it. I thought it was just it was just solid.
1: I think it's a, a, definitely an above-average issue. I think the thing with uh, Lumia is that it's just she's just not you know, good enough. She's there's no way she's going to sort of replace uh, Darth Vader. At the time when this came out, I remember reading it at the t- you know when it was published over here in Return of the Jedi Weekly, and I remember thinking, "All oh, right, yeah, great. You know, this is this is a great character. She and she is memorable." very memorable not least because she's clearly being set up as the sort of successor if you like yeah i think i think her promise is a top draw as, as a sort of a, a proper sort of top draw villain you know goes largely unfulfilled in, in in the marble run of course she's one of these characters from the marble run that was also used in the dark horse run and and in some of the novels she's one of these weird characters that people obviously liked and she was carried on over. But anyway, that's, uh, that's another discussion. That's another podcast. <laughs> uh,
0: so issue 89 was a terrible, terrible fill in issue. Um, the less said about it, the better. Oh. So we're not going to talk about it too much. It's just, I thought the story was it, bad and the art by Brett Blevins is just horrific. It's
1: uh, an awful issue, an awful issue. And it's another one of these in issues that's set on this sort of quasi medieval, uh, world or in this quasi-medieval setting like some of the filling in issues we've had before are and they're always rubbish yeah
0: they're is, all bad
1: so this, yeah
0: we're not, we're not that's that's all we Let's need to pretend say it never either. happened 90 is <laughs> a much more important issue it's got a few things that happen in this issue that are important two things uh, i would say from a plot perspective the first is that we learn that akira is still alive and and we learn that he was able to survive and to shut off the doomsday machine because he is in fact force sensitive. So he wants mm. Luke to train him as a Jedi. Now this is something people have sort of asked Luke to do before, but this is the first time where like Kiro actually has the potential to become a Jedi. And Luke is very reluctant. I like this, uh, this turn of events. It, it seems clear that this is what Joe Duffy has been setting up with kiro right from the beginning when she first introduced him and it, it sort of forces luke to make certain decisions and think about certain things that he has been avoiding but that are interesting to us as readers
1: yeah i agree and i think that the fact that luke is uh, reluctant to train kiro is absolutely in character really good in character writing i mean you know he's obviously aware uh, you know we've we, we've seen in the in the original trilogy that these sort of mistakes that that obi-wan kobe made with anakin skywalker and the terrible you know the terrible sort of um consequences that that had for the galaxy so i think it's absolutely right that luke would be let's say wary of 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 that i know that um you know later writers and other continuities and stuff have had him forming like jedi academies and that's fine too but i think it's absolutely natural that Luke would be reluctant, at least initially.
0: Yes, I I agree. The other plot development in this issue that's important is that there's this really ridiculous sequence where now that they've gotten all of these representatives from the different planets to come back to talk about forming the Alliance, this new government, they have a meeting to hash out how that's going to work. And the ridiculous part is... Akbar and Mon Mothma arbitrarily come up with this rule where if you're not at this meeting, you're permanently barred from having any voice in the government. And of, of course, all of the main characters in the series, for one reason or another, end up missing the meeting. And so at the end of the issue, they're like, well, uh, Luke and Leia and Han and Lando and all of the, our m- big heroes that are main important pieces of the rebellion and are like the heroes of the rebellion none of them can be involved in the government from now on it's doesn't make any sense it's ridiculous and i when i was reading this i was immediately convinced that this had to be a mandate from lucasfilm that they couldn't get into the political stuff uh with these characters and they had to she had to go a different direction with the story
1: you might well be right um it certainly makes sense it's absolutely ridiculous the fact that you know these are not only are these characters actually have proper military ranks like you know general solo commander skywalker etc but they they are rebellion figureheads
0: the fact that they're such important people is the entire reason that they were sent out on these recruiting missions to begin with
1: Yeah, you know, the idea that they would suddenly be excluded just because they hadn't turned up to a meeting. I mean, that's just... I mean, yeah, it's ridiculous is exactly the word that I would use.
0: So the other thing that happens in this issue, is not really uh, plot-wise, is that Luke and Leia have an interesting conversation where they basically decide they don't want anybody to know that Darth Vader was their father. They've decided to uh, keep that uh, secret and in the, in the story, it's because they, they're worried about how everyone will react and how everyone will treat them and look at them differently if they knew that Darth Vader was their father. Now, you had mentioned that this, this plot point was particularly interesting, not just because it's something that readers and viewers would really want to see addressed, but also because it's something that Lucasfilm did not want them to be addressing,
1: yeah that's right luke one of the one of the you know we've talked before about these increasingly sort of draconian um limitations that lucasfilm was putting on duffy about what she could and couldn't do with characters um after return of the jedi uh you know we've, we've sort of talked about that and one of them was that they were that she was not allowed to address the family connection between luke and leia for some reason i don't know why so it's surprising that she managed to sort of get this past Lucas one, But it's a great little scene. It's very tender. It's, yeah. And it was a scene that we as readers wanted to, wanted to see, you know, after Return of the Jedi. We wanted to see them have this conversation. And, and you know, okay, they've decided not to tell anybody about it. But that's fine. But it was just nice to see them address it, you know, address... What I did think is reading it sort of more recently, it would have been funny if they'd have actually addressed in that conversation, the fact that they were forever, you know, kissing and snogging as, uh, you know, earlier on in the yeah. run. <laughs> and it might've been, you know, it might've been fun for them to sort of, a Marvel to sort of, you know, say, yeah, okay, we, you know, but probably, you know, Lucasfilm wouldn't have liked that. Yeah. Either. I don't, I don't probably. think, yeah, I don't um, think
0: Jim Shooter would have liked that very much either.
1: That's right. You know, bit a good, good old fashioned wholesome incest. In the, uh, so to
0: me, this is uh, issue. Mark's a a big shift in the focus of Duffy's run. She was setting up all this political intrigue. And then in this issue, all of a sudden they're like, Nope, we can't do any of that. Issue 91. Uh, the next issue, we see the first inklings of where she's going to shift her focus to, um, going forward, as we'll see, the main characters become less and less the main characters and the supporting cast that Joe Duffy builds up becomes more and more central to the story. I think in direct response to all the different restrictions that she was having with the main characters, issue ninety one. There's just a hint of that. the The main part is really interesting because they go to Chewbacca's homeworld Kashyyyk, and it turns out that a bunch of the Wookies have been enslaved. Um, with by the Slaver group, similar to what we saw with Lumaya in issue 88. But this group is being run by this guy named Knife. And Knife is going to turn out to be a very important character because there, there's really no hint of it here. But it turns out he's the leader of a group called the Nagi, who are from a different galaxy outside of the Star Wars galaxy, and they've sort of arrived here and are doing dastardly things.
1: Yeah, I mean, this issue is really sort of the very beginning of the of the Nagai invasion. I think it's interesting, what, well, and also very cool that we're we're on the planet Kashyyyk. We had sort of seen a flashback uh, in the in the comics in the Star Wars Weekly, some of the um, British strips to sort of showing Chewbacca on 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 Kashyyyk. But um, of course, this was the planet that was featured in the infamous Star Wars Holiday Special back in in in, in 1978.
0: Yeah, it was interesting to me. I was surprised that they brought the continuity from the holiday special into the comics. Um, but of course, at this point in you know in uh, nineteen eighty four, it probably didn't have quite the same reputation as being the most ridiculous thing of all time. Because you know <laughs> at the time this comic is coming out, Lucasfilm is still putting out these holiday specials. It's just now they're about the Ewoks. Uh, so it it probably made more sense at the time than it does in retrospect. Um, and, and it's cool to see them there, but it's a little bit jarring now to read it and see certain characters and plot elements from the holiday special acknowledged uh when Lucasfilm and Star Wars fans have spent so long trying to forget that ever existed
1: yeah i mean i think it's probably just because this i mean i imagine in in the u.s the summer's holiday special was at this point still sort of semi-fondly remembered you know um we never got the holiday special over here in the uk it was a th- obviously it's a thanksgiving um special and of course you know thanksgiving doesn't mean anything over here so we we never got it at all but um but still, you know, I'd heard of Kashyyyk, I'd read about it. So it was great in the comic to be sort of going there. But yeah, the most important thing about this issue is, is is the Nagai invasion. It's the start of that sort of thing. And you have this Nagai warrior um, named Knife. The thing I, w- I will say about, about Knife is that and the Nagai is that they're very influenced by Japanese um, manga and anime, which uh, Joe Duffy was a huge fan of. The Nagai themselves are named after a Japanese manga artist called Go Nagai. Who was the creator of uh, Have you Have you heard of Cutie Honey? The Cutie Honey. Yes, I,
0: I haven't I haven't seen it or read it, but I, I'm familiar with what it is. No,
1: I, likewise, I've heard of it. But anyway, apparently, Go Nagai created that, and that is why she named. She was obviously a fan of his, of his art. Um, and
0: I think we're going to see more and more manga and anime influences in the book. Akira previously has a very, you know, manga look to him, which we've discussed, yes. but. Uh, there's going to be not just the design of the characters, but certain storyline plot elements and story elements that we're going to see, particularly from my perspective, the relationship, I'm jumping ahead, but between Danny and Den, that feels very much like an anime plot line.
1: I mean, she was a big fan of that, and she brought that into this sort of mainstream American comic, which... You know, I think I'm right in saying that certainly in the UK at that time, you know, manga and anime were pretty much unknown. Um, so she was quite sort of forward thinking in that way at the time, you know.
0: Yeah, uh. it's uh, manga. I was not familiar with it at all. Anime was something that we started to get here in the late 70s. And, but I think you're right. In terms of comic book creators, I think she was very cutting edge with that. The only The only person before that who... I can think of who is clearly influenced even earlier um, by manga uh, is uh, Wendy Peeney. Her art style is, is very right. heavily influenced Elfquest, on Elf quest. Right, um, right. yeah. But yeah, it was, is very uh, innovative for the time period.
1: The other thing I just want to say about the Nagai, I mean, we're going to talk about them later, I know, but just, just to sort of get out of the way now is that it's interesting that they come from outside of the star wars galaxy they're at they're outside of the known galaxy within this sort of star wars world and if you're writing post return of the jedi Adventures. There's two ways you can go. You either have the the empire essentially remain strong. Yeah, another way to do it is to have a threat come from outside the galaxy. You know, neither of neither are that great. I think that coming from uh, having a threat come from outside the Star Wars galaxy is the lesser of two evils. The problem with having the empire rise up again, as we've seen in the sequel trilogy, is that it somewhat devalues or undermines the heroism and the sacrifices that we saw in the in the original trilogy
0: yeah i agree like it it doesn't appear that they accomplished anything at all
1: right exactly so it makes you sort of think what was it for all
0: right so let's (laughs) let's move on to issue 92 92 is a direct sequel to annual number three what i find interesting here is it's a double-sized issue it's got a, a really cool uh cover part of me wondered upon reading this because it seemed kind of random to have this giant double-sized story here. I kind of wondered if this was actually originally intended to be a Star Wars annual number four, and they just decided to, put it I, in the regular yeah. series because I think so. sales I think were down so. at this point
1: yes I, I think that's probably uh, entirely right I've always assumed that this was initially intended to appear in a you know in a never-to-be-published Star Wars annual number four you know uh, to me
0: like one thing that stood out to me is that as I mentioned with issue 81 we get this introduction where we they fill you in on everything that happened in case you missed Return of the Jedi it's a very very typical of shooter marvel the idea was any issue could be someone's first issue so we got to make sure they know what's happening
1: which i, I think had... is a good i think that's a good <laughs> good way to write comics to i a point. agree
0: to a point i had no idea what the hell was happening in this issue because i had not read <laughs> annual number three and everything that happens in here really only makes sense if you've already read Annual 3 because it brings back all the characters from Annual 3 and we go back, we find they meet up again with the guy who had switched sides because Luke wouldn't teach him and he's turned into a villain, but his buddy, who is still uh, in the Alliance now, basically talks him out of being an asshole. That's basically the plot. The There's a little bit of, of interesting character stuff with Luke because he realizes that the decisions that he made kind of screwed up everybody else. I feel like Luke realized he was being a little bit selfish by not teaching people. Um, And we're going to see that play out a bit, a little bit later when he finally decides to give Kiro some instruction. But other than that, like this issue didn't do anything for me. And I was totally confused as to why I should care about any of these random people that just showed up.
1: Yeah. I think we sort of talked about this earlier that I think that Joe Duffy thought a lot more of these Characters that, or this storyline than than perhaps readers did, but I think it's better than Annual Three. I think it's a better story. You know, it's a nice conclusion to that to that whole sort of arc. You know, again, it offers some sort of interesting glimpses of Luke's attitude towards training other people. You're taking people on and training sort of Jedi. You know, ties in with the whole uh, Kiro thing that we'd seen. It's a bit forgettable, though. It's not, you know, it's not a, it's not an issue that's particularly imprinted on my memory at all, you know.
0: This was something that uh, I felt like it would have had far more impact if these characters had been developed over a long period of time. Ninety-three for me is it's another sort of one-off story. I actually thought the story in ninety-three was really interesting. The short version is Luke and the, the gang end up going to this planet where there are these two factions that are fighting against each other and. The people that they're trying to help are on the Alliance, but they don't realize that the Empire has been destroyed because they're like, well, we're still getting attacked by the Empire. And when they go there, it basically turns out that there's two groups that both think they're the Alliance. And there's uh, this guy who's playing them against each other by making them each think that the other group is part of the Empire. So they're fighting against each other for absolutely no reason they they are the same but they think they're different so they're killing each other there's i mean the way i put it it seems like a kind of heavy-handed morality play but i kind of like this issue i thought it was pretty good
1: i don't know whether i'd go so far as pretty good to me it's it's, (laughs) it's just kind of mediocre it's not terrible it's not bad it's not you know but it's Again, with this one, it's one of those ones I find it quite hard to remember. Not, it's not particularly memorable. And, and again, this is this is what we're beginning to see now by this point in the run, that, you know, Joe Duffy's earlier stuff was really memorable.
0: As we're getting farther along, the stories are becoming sort of more forgettable. And I wonder how much that has to do... I don't want to blame everything on Lucasfilm for interference, but I, I do wonder how much of her creative willpower was being sapped by their constant uh nagging
1: yeah i think that i think that's a fair comment and i think also the fact that you're getting to the point now where the you know a lot of ancillary characters are coming in and sort of pushing the main cast out of the picture a little bit uh you know and ultimately we want to read about han luke and leia don't we and if they're sort of reduced to being almost co-stars in their own book obviously that's going to have a, an effect on the quality of the uh of the comics you know
0: yeah so 94, com- let's jump to 94, because I know we both have things to say about issue 94. One of the things, it's, it's basically a spotlight issue on the Ewoks, and these guys we saw much earlier in the run where, as children, they're kind of these fluffy little uh, tykes who are intelligent and can talk. But when they reach maturity, they turn into these gigantic, uh, raging, mindless beasts. And so this issue is kind of a battle between the Ewoks and
1: Larsby's, I think. The,
0: the Larsby's, Yeah. Anyway, it's a fight between them.
1: It's like <laughs> these two
0: cute little fluffy races and they have this humorous little fight and um you know, whatever. I I didn't think the issue was particularly interesting or that fight. Like it's it's no, it's supposed it's to be com- funny, but, it's, yeah, but not. it's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um but absolutely if, if I remember correctly, this also is the introduction to an exciting new, hilarious joke race to join those two. And it's the, the Hiromi. <laughs> I had a feeling this is what you wanted to talk about with this issue.
1: Um, well, there's two things about this issue really. Yeah. There's the Hiromi, um, specifically the character of Hirog. I mean, they're just rubbish. Interestingly, uh, we were talking about Duffy's, um, Japanese influence or the influence of Japanese, um, culture and uh, manga on, on Duffy. Um, the Hiromi are named after the Japanese singer Hiromi Go, so again, there's another, another little sort of nod uh, to, to that sort of thing. Hirog is uh, really my least favourite character the entire run. I mean, just rubbish. You know, he looks rubbish as do the rest of his brain.
0: They're kind of like these, um, like these bug people. They're like yeah. fat bug people. But well, they're not, fat's not the right word. They have a, like a big m- midsection, but skinny little legs and skiddy little arms and, and goofy heads.
1: Yeah. I mean, they just look rubbish. I mean, it's like something that a kids made up, you know, the design. They just, they're vaguely sort of insectoid, as you say. But uh, But then just,
0: they, they also wear berets. Am I right about that? Yeah,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, they're just terrible. And they, and And Duffy obviously thinks that they're really funny and they're not. That's... That's one of the even, That's an even bigger problem. They're, they're just annoying. But on top of all of that, of course, this issue sees the introduction of um, Cynthia Martin.
0: Yeah, Cynthia Martin takes over as the new artist. So, you know, it's not, a, it's not an auspicious <laughs> debut since she starts off with this design for the Hiromi.
1: I mean, I'm, I'm going to say right up front now, I'm not a fan of Cynthia Martin in any way. So even as a kid, I couldn't stand. I couldn't stand Cynthia Martin. I really don't like her art. When these issues came out, I remember thinking, "What the hell is this?" You know, who? What? You know, I know I moan about Carmine Infantino, but but crikey, you know, Cynthia Martin makes you sort of long for the glory days of him.
0: <laughs> well, okay, so I have a very different view of Cynthia Martin. <laughs> I want to talk more about Cynthia Martin, really, next issue because in this issue, it's an interesting transition issue for me because we do get the first issue with cynthia martin as the penciler but this is also the last issue with tom palmer on inks so there's a real transition from one artistic period to another period i feel like cynthia martin's pencils are extremely influenced by the inker i uh i'm guessing she has a very light line uh, um, that's just a guess. But when throughout the, her run, we get a bunch of different inkers and the quality of her work varies tremendously depending on who the inking is. I think in this issue with Tom Palmer, it's decent. And I think in the next couple issues in, in 95, 96, 97, she's being inked by uh, Steve. Leah Yeah. Yeah, Steve. Lowry, Those yeah, issues, yeah. I think the art in the next Three issues, ninety-five in particular is great. But then she starts getting other anchors and she uh, yeah, it, it I, I really think falls are... apart later on. I really like the art in ninety-five. I want to talk a lot about ninety-five, but ninety-four.
1: Ninety-four looks to me like I mean I love God knows I love Tom Palmer, but even he couldn't even he couldn't say. <laughs> Cynthia Martin's art it looks like some kind of 80s Saturday morning kids cartoon I just the thing about Cynthia Martin is I I don't want to be too unkind you know it's its oh no please go ahead well you know it's personal taste isn't it I I do see on occasion something you know almost sort of classical in her stuff almost like Art Nouveau in 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 her artwork at times but by and large again like Infantino but even more so I think she's a really really bad fit And also her grasp of like anatomy and posture and and sort of articulation just doesn't seem to be very good. I I take your point about different Incas working with her and and actually the art does look quite different, but it always looks, uh, personally to me, it always looks like Cynthia Martin and it always looks bad.
0: (laughs) Okay, I want to talk a lot more about this issue ninety five because I really like her art in issue ninety five specifically. Still have a couple more things about ninety four I want to say. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, it's the last Tom Palmer issue. He he was on the book for quite a while, and he had a real important, steadying influence on the artwork uh, coming out of the Infantino era. Like the the in some ways, I think Palmer is the most important. He's the best and most important Star Wars artist for me on this run. Like.
1: He's been there since almost the beginning. I mean, I think his first, right, since the uh, Star Hoppers of Aduba Three storyline, which was the first post Star Wars movie. You know, the first sort of, you know, sort of issue seven and eight or whatever. He was he was inking, checking at that at that point. So he's been, yeah, a mainstay of the run, really.
0: And he had all those great covers. It's uh, he he still has a couple more covers coming up. I really like Palmer not as much as you do. I have mixed feelings about his his effect on a book um because it everything looks like his work. In this case though, uh, particularly with so many fill-ins and stuff that this book has suffered through, I think he w- is really important to the book's success over the long term.
1: I agree. I agree. And 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 particularly at giving the book some kind of sense of sort of continuity. I know he's not always been there, but particularly like, you know, towards the end of Infantino's run where he was brought in to really try and curb the worst excesses of Infantino's sort of stylized highly angular artwork so the uh... other thing
0: i wanted to mention there's two more things um Mm. with palmer leaving uh even well let's just say the main creative team when when we're looking at the the penciler and the writer it's interesting to me that starting with this issue and for the rest of the series other than a couple fill-ins we have an all-female uh partnership here with joe duffy writing cynthia martin
1: drawing kind of important though in a way And and it was it was I've seen that mentioned in comic book articles that are nothing to do with Star Wars. They mentioned the Star Wars run because of that, you know, that there was a period there when it was, yeah, almost like a sort of a a female run show, you know? And so that is kind of important, you know,
0: it's important. I think it's what I think is important about it is simply that even though I know you don't like Martin's artwork, I do think it fit in certain stylistic ways. What Joe Duffy wanted to do. I feel like, Martin has a certain design aesthetic, a uh, certain angularity that um, works with some of the manga influences, particularly with the design of the Nagai. It feels to me like Martin and Duffy were on the same page. Um, I think
1: Martin was a big fan of, uh, of, of, of sort of manga and anime as well. And I think that is, so I think you're right in that case, you know,
0: I I feel like they may have fed into each other's worst tendencies because the run gets worse and worse as they go along. We'll talk a lot more about that when we get Mm. to the next
1: batch of issues. Me issue 94 is, uh, that is the beginning of the end for me that that is the moment where i don't want to say it's where it jumps the shark i don't really like that phrase particularly but but it's the moment where it's like yeah this is now we're into the death throes of the series this is that's how i feel
0: that's it for this episode of the classic comics forum podcast as always, I'm your host Scott Harris King. I want to thank my guests, the Confessor, I'd like to thank you all for listening, and next time we're finally going to wrap up this epic six-part discussion of Marvel Star Wars. We'll start with the great storyline in issues 95 through 97 with the return of Lumaya and the shocking reveal of her true identity. Confessor and I will continue our knockdown drag-out fight over the pencils of cynthia martin and then we'll all watch an abject horror as the series crashes and burns like the hindenburg only with no survivors so next episode we'll be discussing star wars by marvel numbers 95 through 107 we'll also do a quick wrap-up of the series as a whole until then as always you can visit us online at classiccomics.org to join the conversation